Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, May the 24th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. As voters go to the polls in 28 countries this weekend to elect the new European Parliament, the expectation is of a very significant surge in the support for populist parties, everyone from La Lega in Italy to Alternative for Deutschland in Germany. But what do we mean when we describe a political party as populist? I'm joined by Jan Werner Muller, who is Professor of Politics at Princeton University, and he's author of the 2016 book, What is Populism? He's in Dublin to address the Institute of International and European Affairs on how modern democracies can combat what he sees as a threat to democratic norms and liberties. Jan Werner Muller, you're, you're very welcome to the podcast. Let's get to nitty gritty first. The word populism, frequently it seems to me to be used as an insult by people who seem threatened by certain political movements. And also, also it's often, it seems to be used inaccurately, uh, just, just as a form of abuse against people whose opinions you might not like. Undoubtedly true. It's politically very contested, especially during the euro crisis. I think there was a strong tendency among leading EU representatives to basically label any opposition to euro crisis policies as automatically populist and thereby trying to discredit it. But the fact that people fight about a word can't prevent us from trying to make sense of the phenomenon. So I still believe there is such a thing as as populism, even if today maybe we're also slightly in danger even as observers, because we're constantly told that we live in the age of populism, that we apply that label to phenomena for which we have actually much more precise concepts, be it protectionism, be it racism, be it nativism, all kinds of things that might capture certain policy stances much better than the, by now, I would agree, overused term populism. Because that critique used in that way you describe in the uh, in the aftershock after the financial crash was very often directed at parties of the left like Syriza, Podemos, um, and up until quite recently, there often seemed to be an attempt to say, well, populism is something which can exist both on the left and on the right. And while it is true that you can apply some of these principles to the government in Venezuela, for example, there were particular circumstances in Latin America that don't apply in the same way in Europe. And we seem now, when we talk about populism, most of the time to be talking about parties of, of the right, nativist parties, anti- anti-immigrant parties. So if I may, let me put my cards on the table. So contrary to what we're often told today, not everybody who, as the phrase goes, criticizes elites or is angry at the establishment is therefore automatically a populist who might somehow pose a danger to democracy. Actually, when you think about it, it's a very strange thought because up until recently, any old civics textbook would have told you that keeping a close eye on the powerful is actually a civic virtue, is actually a sign of good democratic engagement. So it's true that when populists are in opposition, they criticize governments and usually also other parties. But above all, they claim that they, and only they, represent what they often call the real people or also the silent majority. With the result 
on the one hand perhaps rather obvious, that they also claim that all other contenders for power are fundamentally illegitimate. It's never just a policy difference or even an argument about values, which after all is quite normal, ideally even productive in a democracy. No, it always comes down to saying that the others are simply corrupt or to coin a phrase, crooked characters. And secondly, and maybe less obviously, but I would say even more dangerously, populists are also going to say that all those among the people themselves, all those citizens who do not share their understanding of the supposedly real people, that with all these citizens, you can basically put into question whether they truly belong to the people at all. So long story short, I think what matters about populism is not anti-elitism. Any of us can criticize the powerful. It doesn't mean we're right, but it certainly doesn't mean that we're a danger to democracy. What matters is anti-pluralism. It's their tendency always to exclude others, obviously at the level of party politics, less obviously at the level of the citizenry themselves. And that can indeed exist on the right and on the left. On the left, as you were saying, we've seen it very strongly in Venezuela. There was a point after which you simply could not disagree with Chavez and still be a legitimate opponent of the regime. You were excluded, you were discredited, you were an enemy of the people, to coin a phrase. But in Europe, of course, we've seen this phenomenon primarily on the right. And I would venture that a lot of the left-wing parties, which are sometimes very casually called populist, probably aren't really. So Podemos might be a particularly good example. It's true that they themselves call themselves populist and have sometimes even gestured at Latin America as providing a model for what they want to do. But from what I understand obviously as an outsider of Spanish politics, is that they don't really claim that all other contenders for power are illegitimate, nor do they really incite hatred against minorities or basically try to exclude certain citizens entirely. Their self-description as, po- as populist Podemos, I mean, seems to me to be based more in their sense of trying to create a, a more wide, broad uh, left-wing movement which appealed to parts of society which their ideology hadn't appealed to previously. Yes, and they were very explicit about the fact that they wanted to construct, actually very self-consciously, a sort of united people that stands against, call it what you wish, the oligarchy, la casta, something that a lot of left-wing movements have tried have tried to do with varying success and with varying additional elements. So if you look at the Five Stars movement, Beppe Grillo, the founder, never just criticized professional politicians. He would always say professional journalists are also corrupt and part of the establishment. So while these these parties and movements are often run together, because they're all in Southern Europe, I think it's important to look at some of the important differences. And Five Stars might be the most radical experiment, as far as I can see, in terms of really breaking with the institutions which since the 19th century were considered indispensable for the proper functioning of representative democracy, by which I mean political parties and professional media. Because Grillo basically said, no need for any mediation, no need for media. You, the people, just write to me directly on the blog, and I'll be the great amplifier. By now, I think Italians have understood that it ain't as simple as that. But it's a very strong suggestion. And it's actually something that a lot of populists are trying to suggest to their followers. Nothing between you, the citizen, and your uniquely authentic representative. And it's probably pretty obvious who on the other side of the Atlantic, somewhat north of Latin America, (laughs) has perfected this art. 
And uh, I'm treading on dangerous territory here because I'm very far from being a political scientist or indeed a historian, but it seems to me when people express their fears about the the kind of trend uh, which you describe, they very often ha- uh, hark back to to ancient Rome and the fear among the Roman elites of the the alliance between the mob on the the uncontrollable mob on the one side and the and, and the despot on the other. That the, the, that uh, that nightmare, which representative democracy was always supposed to be a sort of a a guardrail against. This has been a, I, I dare say, typically liberal in the broadest sense of liberal response to this phenomenon. You know, basically a lot of the cliches of 19th century mass psychology, to pick on an era even closer to our time, have sort of come back in terms of, well, the masses are irrational, you know, they might want to abolish democracy, uh, you know, let's have more gatekeepers to make sure that the great unwashed, you know, don't make too many, too many decisions. But... Just to mention a couple of points that push back against this, in a sense, very comforting for many people sort of interpretation. Up until this day, no right-wing populist, at least, has come to power in Western Europe or North America without the help of very established conservative elites. Nigel Farage didn't bring about Brexit all by himself. He needed his Michael Gove's, Gove's, his his Boris Johnson's, all these people who basically told people more or less Nigel over there, he's a bit eccentric, but Brexit is a jolly good idea, and you should go for it. And the same in the U.S., of course. Trump didn't become president as the candidate of a spontaneous grassroots movement of, as the cliche would have it, angry white working-class males. No, he was the candidate of a very established party. Some would say the party of the establishment. He also needed his, no pun intended, heavyweight supporters, such as Chris Christie, Newt Gingrich, and Rudy Giuliani, who basically told Republican voters he's a bit eccentric, but he is our candidate. So if we simply focus on the, you know, the supposed mob that has now sort of decided to be done with democracy, we fail to see the complicity of these elites. And if we look back in history, which I think we should always do cautiously, I think far too many people nowadays are in the business of selling us, you know, 10 bullet points about foolproof lessons from history. Um, Nevertheless, if you look at many of the sort of typical examples that come up, I think the lesson, if, if, if any, is not that the people destroy democracy. It's elites who destroy democracy. It's Italian elites who brought Mussolini to power. He didn't march on Rome. He arrived by sleeper car because the king and various established actors had invited him to come. Nazi Germany is a bit more complicated, but there as well, conservative elites played an absolutely crucial role in ultimately bringing Hitler to power. So I think liberals, again, in the broadest sense, make it a bit too easy for themselves if they now conclude that, you know, the people have somehow decided to be done, done with democracy and fall for all these demagogues. If you look at surveys, there isn't all that much evidence for people all of a sudden having decided that dictatorship is preferable, that authoritarianism is a much is a much better, much better option. So I think we're kind of looking in the wrong place if, you know, from on high we always blame the people. And so do you think that we're we make a fundamental category error? I say when I say we, I mean the media in particular. When looking at these phenomena, we point our fingers in the direction of white working class voters in the American Rust Belt or working class former Labour voters in Sunderland in England or people who used to vote communist in the French industrial heartlands. And we always see we always seem to define these movements by those people who do vote for these parties. But as you say, they wouldn't get within an inch of 
of a of a majority position or any hope of a, attaining a majority position without a broader coalition that includes usually a large swathe of traditional conservative political parties and voters. I think what has made the story very complicated is that if you look at the sort of range of leaders or even by now leaders in government who plausibly could be called populist. So if you look at Poland, Hungary, Turkey, maybe India, the US to some degree, and you look at some of the leaders, Farage, Le Pen, Salvini, etc., it's true that in a sense they pursue a common strategy. And I would add they also learn from each other very clearly. But the fact that they have a common strategy and that therefore the patterns look similar does not necessarily indicate that the cause is always the same. I know this is a very pedantic thing to say, but I think that's what you get for inviting professors on your program. You do still need to look very closely at the individual national constellations. And in some cases, yes, it's crucial to understand how, for instance, in the U.S., why exactly some people who had voted for Obama twice switched to Trump. I mean, this happened, and it had something to do with immigration from what we know now empirically. But these vast generalizations that, oh, everywhere it's about immigration, or everywhere the working class has switched to right-wing populism, empirically is certainly not true. As many of our colleagues have tried to point out, if you look across the board, most of the voters of, let's say, right-wing populists are not working class. And most of the working class doesn't vote right-wing populist in a lot of countries. So I think far too often we are in danger of kind of blindly accepting the story which especially right-wing populists want to tell about their own success. You know, it's often said about them that, oh, you know, they're the ones who give simplistic answers to complex problems. But with all due respect, I think we all have a simple answer. I mean, if somebody could explain to us, you know, the one root cause of populism globally in 140 characters or less, I think we would like it too. But there is no such simple explanation. And therefore, I think it's still crucial to look at what exactly may have facilitated the rise of these actors in different countries. It's partly a matter of policies, but it's only partly a matter of the state of the media, the state of other parties, the question of whether you might already have a culture war going on, which I think can make it easier for certain right-wing populists to say, on this, on this side are the real people, and on the other side are, of course, liberal cosmopolitan. We all know what that really means, you know, elites. So... A more cautious, a more cautious approach, um, as boring as that might sound, I think is in order. But I mean, to go back into that idea of a notion of the people, uh, or more precisely, the real people, which is, which I think you argue is very core to this, to to, to these sets of beliefs. Obviously, that's not a not a new idea. I know you don't like direct correlations or parallels with you know with fascism or Nazism, but that formed part of part of those ideologies. And even more recently, I mean, I think it was Richard Nixon uh, who invented the phrase the, the the silent majority. And I think often also when you look at um, areas where perhaps national questions are, remain unresolved or there is conflict very close to here in Northern Ireland, there is a certain kind of rhetoric on both sides, but particularly perhaps on the dominant unionist side for many years, that the real people were the unionist people of Northern Ireland. And that's not an uncommon phenomenon in, in nationalism across Europe and in other places, is it? I agree. And God forbid I'm not saying that somehow people talk is verboten and whoever sort of talks about the people must therefore be a populist. It's a question of how you do it. In fact, you might say that 
any politician who doesn't have a conception of the people at all is lacking something important. So if you ask a candidate, for instance, you know, what's your conception of the people? Where do you want to take this country? And then they would say, look, I don't have a conception like that, but I can give you fantastic policies on 25 technocratic issues. I think you'd be right to say that something is sort of missing in that person's political or political temperament. But it's a question of how you do it. Do you do it as basically something that you lay out as a vision and then you're open to basically have that vision at least momentarily falsified if voters go a different direction and say, no, it's not an attractive vision? Or do you say, no, I basically deduce it from my symbolic construction of the real people as I see them. And if people vote a different way, I'm much more inclined, I'm not saying this happens always, but they're much, these populists are much more inclined to immediately say it must have been rigged or it must have been fraud. It's very typical for right-wing populists in particular to say, look, if the silent majority could express itself, we would always already be in power. So if we're not in power, it means that probably somebody has silenced the majority. Remember Trump before the 2016 election when he was asked, are you going to accept a result where Hillary Clinton wins? And, of course, he famously answered, I'll tell you at the time. But according to some surveys, everybody understood what that really meant. 70% of Trump supporters said if she wins, it must have been rigged. And a lot of populists basically constantly suggest to their followers that they can't be wrong and they can't really lose. And again, I think the, the maybe somewhat more subtle difference is important. There's a difference between somebody who says, look, our election system is bad, too much money in politics or too much gerrymandering, uh, and I think we should fix it. That's, of course, completely legitimate. But if somebody says, our system is bad and rigged because I didn't win, that's not a democratic argument. But that's what a lot of populists end up doing. Most recently, Erdogan in Turkey clearly didn't like the result, couldn't accept it. So now let's have another election until the real people win, and he's basically confirmed in his power. Is this a philosophy? Is it a movement? Um, does it have uh, an intellectual superstructure? Uh, one comes across these rather, to me, to my mind anyway, rather mad-looking characters, or sounding characters like Alexander Dugan in Russia and people like that. Um, you know, Steve Bannon doesn't seem to me to be quite the intellectual that he believes himself to be. I mean, is there a, is there a uh, anything more than a kind of ramshackle set of ideas underpinning this? So I don't want to seem like I'm simply sneering at these at these characters, but it's true that some of them do want to sell us something that, you know, they try to make into a proper philosophy, a proper ism. But if you find anything worthwhile in my approach to this to this question, then I think it should be pretty clear that no, it's not really a body of ideas. Um, it is distinctive. It has a particular logic. Uh, it's available to both left and right. Um, but there's no real sort of policy content to it as such. So if you tell me what you think about the euro crisis or refugees, I will not be able from that to tell you you are or you aren't really a populist. If a leader says... Only I truly represent the people. That, in my view, is a clear indication of where things are going and where things are going. I think things are going wrong. Therefore, maybe it's also important to kind of not conflate nationalism and populism. A lot of the characters you just mentioned clearly are nationalists, and nationalism does have content. Um, and contrary to what I think is sometimes said, 
a kind of international alliance of nationalists is not so obviously a contradiction in terms. Again, liberals sometimes say, oh, that's so obviously contradictory, you know, they will all fight each other. Well, no, not necessarily. If you think back to the 19th century, there were plenty of liberals, you know, people like Giuseppe Mazzini and others who said, look, we all believe in the same principle, national self-determination against empires. We help each other in our national freedom struggles, and there's no contradiction in doing that. Obviously, if, you know, every single EU country is governed by somebody who says, my country first, and then they all sort of sit down at the table, yes, that's going to cause a bit of a, cause a, bit of a problem. But so in that sense, nationalism is, is, is much more of a real ideology, um, can have much more real content, can have more specific policies. But not every nationalist has to be a populist, and not every populist necessarily has to be a nationalist. I suppose I'm wondering that this movement or this set of ideas exist almost exclusively outside the marketplace of ideas in our elite institutions, including Princeton University and our other universities and our most of our mainstream media. It exists outside them, certainly for the moment. Or, or are there people who, whatever about the more extreme forms of this, are there people who articulate these points of view and explore them in a, sim in a sympathetic way to some extent within those institutions? So... I think actually one of the most notable and maybe worrying trends in more recent years has not really been the allegedly unstoppable wave of populism or as Nigel Farage, for whom apparently the image of the wave held insignificant, uh, insufficiently significant world historical importance given his own role, tsunami of populism. Contrary to that image, I think the much more worrying development has been what you might call for shorthand the mainstreaming of the far right. I mean, up until very recently, Sebastian Kurz, the Austrian chancellor, was the great hero of many conservatives across Europe, somebody who seemed to selectively appropriate some of these policy ideas from the far right. Again, I wouldn't necessarily call them populist, but they clearly were part of the repertoire of far right populist, populist thinkers and, and politicians, and sort of selectively integrate them into something that was still very acceptable as the center-right. I think we've seen that in a lot of European countries, with the result that sometimes entire an entire political spectrum has shifted to the right, which is not in and of itself prohibited. But you sometimes feel that this happens without people necessarily wanting it, because they think they're voting for mainstream parties, to a large degree still, but actually they're legitimating far-right, in this case, populist, populist ideas. So all of a sudden you end up like the Netherlands or Denmark, where a lot of people are saying, look, did we really want to go this far in terms of refugee policies, immigration policies? Maybe not, but now it's very hard to go back. So that, I think, is a dynamic that we don't see if we always remain totally fixated on the populist parties. And we don't, for instance, notice how, I would say, many center-right parties uh, have really, on a certain level, ran out of ideas. I mean, it's a sort of cliche of our time that social democracy has this big problem, and 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 might be in a in a in a fatal crisis. But if you asked people generally, you know, what do you think social democracy or socialism is? I think most citizens can give you some kind of answer. If you ask people, what the hell is Christian democracy? I mean, maybe I shouldn't shouldn't include Ireland in this. Maybe I'm completely wrong. But in many parts of Europe, I think if you ask people, what is Christian democracy really? Or what does the center-right really stand for? I bet many citizens would be lost for words. 
So I think Although, this if anything, it's the Social Democrats who've suffered even more electorally in the last 10 years. They've, they've suffered, and I think there are reasons for that. And, and, and I'm not saying that you know, this crisis isn't real, but I think it's not, that's not really necessarily a crisis at the level of fundamental principles. And if somebody goes back to some of these fundamental principles and, and packages, them, packages them in a, in, in a credible way, as arguably Jeremy Corbyn did in 2017, seems like you can still do a lot with these principles. Whereas the centre-right, as far as I can see, suffers a real vacuum of what they actually what they actually stand for, not least with regard to the European Union, where very often they've also, in a sense, tended to copy certain actually much more far-right discourses and, if anything, bet on a perhaps paradoxical-sounding strategy of destruction through imitation. So if we become more like them, they're sort of going to disappear somehow. And I fear that empirically that hasn't really been true for the most part. I'm going to ask you in a moment about what happens when these movements or these parties actually achieve power. But but first, I want to ask you about the idea that um, a lot of what underpins these movements, uh, even though they are real political movements that represent real things that are happening, is that they are they are an aesthetic as much as anything else. Uh, and what I mean by that is that uh, one of the ways in which they differ profoundly from the movements of the 1920s and 30s to which people sometimes co- compare them to was that at that time you had mass violence on the streets, you had states which mobilized as 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 purely militarized states, you had a kind of an urge to, to physical violence, which you know, there have been unpleasant incidents, but there's nothing like that. The occasional milkshake gets thrown um, now. So we live in a world of greater prosperity, where, as some people have pointed out, we have much older populations, uh, where people express themselves through social media. That makes the political discourse and the way in which this plays out very different, doesn't it? So a question of something like authenticity becomes very important. And we hear that Donald Trump appeared authentic to American voters in a way that other politicians didn't. And I think we see that phenomenon with Nigel Farage and other populist politicians too. So there's something deep-seated sort of cultural around technology and around the way in which our societies are changing as well, isn't there? I would agree that for many of these political actors, it's been important to suggest this sense of an immediate connection between the people and the one truly authentic leader. So bypassing traditional political parties and bypassing professional media. You may remember that sort of famous uh, recommendation, that famous piece of advice by Kellyanne Conway. Why don't you get your news directly from the president? So that combines, you know, basically the abolition of professional journalists with the abolition of any kind of intermediate institutions, be it civil society or political parties. So that has played a role. But I think there's also another aspect to what you pointed to as as a kind of aesthetic element. So I agree that these sort of overblown analogies with fascism are not very helpful. If anything, they make us misunderstand the era we live in. Nevertheless, it's also true that certainly right-wing populists, precisely because on one level they reduce all political questions to questions of belonging, where somebody who doesn't disagree is very soon told, you're un-American, you're un-Hungarian, you're un-Turkish. In a sense, therefore, these, these movements and parties are also in, always engaged in a kind of culture war. So culture matters for them. And therefore, it's maybe also not an accident that where these right-wing populists have come to power and where they had enough power to really sort of do what they want to do, they've put a premium 
on capturing the film industry, theater, education, what's going to be in school books. They want to model, you know, a certain kind of citizen, which doesn't mean that everybody has to keep marching in the streets all the time, you know, fully sort of profess ideological allegiance or anything like that. But it's also always important for them to kind of mark the boundary between the real people, often culturally defined in certain ways, and then those who are allegedly, in the case of right-wing populists, part of this liberal cosmopolitan, etc., etc., other other culture. So therefore, I think maybe it's it's also always worth paying attention to how they do that, because it might also provide an opening for how to fight back that goes beyond sort of some of the usual conventional policy recommendations. So people immediately jump to issues like, oh, we have to do more for, uh, you know, unemployment, unemployed people, or, you know, better integration of cities and countryside. All that is important, of course. But one also has to understand the particular fight these sorts of actors are fighting. And it's not just about policies. There seems to me there's been a sense over the last several years of kind of perhaps a certain smoke self-satisfaction, the idea that when these parties came to power, if they came to power, that they'd somehow be tamed in the way that other radical movements of various sorts have been by contact with, you know, the, the pragmatic compromises that require being in government. But we don't quite see that. We see something different in terms of what they do when they get their hands on the lever of power. Yes, indeed. There have been various, I think, again, in the broadest sense, sort of liberal forms of complacency. It was often said that populists only offer these highly simplistic sort of answers to complex problems. Ergo, on day one of their time in government, it was going to be obvious that nothing really works in, pra- in practice. All the kind of demagogic promises made to the people you know, couldn't really be kept. So either populists in power become pragmatic or they fail so obviously that people will abandon them. So, in other words, you know, problem solves itself in one form or another, or a kind of variation of this, of this theme. Because it's often said that they're all anti-elite, people then say, well, you know, once they get into government, they're going to be the elite, and they can't possibly continue anti-elite discourse. Well, for one thing, it's pretty obvious that no populist has ever run out of scapegoats or enemies of the people, even if they entirely occupy a government and, you know, are fully in control almost of of entire societies. Think of Turkey or Hungary. They just invent new, as the the cliched phrase then tends to go, shadowy international elites on the outside who are preventing them from implementing the people's uniquely authentic will. So I think, alas, we have learned in our era from many examples, be it Hungary, Poland, Turkey, Venezuela, maybe India to some degree, and alas, maybe to some degree, the US, that not only can populists govern, but they can govern specifically as populists, by which I mean as actors who on one level will not accept the legitimacy of an opposition and who will push back against any criticism from independent institutions, be it free media, or the judiciary with the argument that only we represent the people, you're effectively enemies of the people, and who also very often will try to hijack the state itself with partisan actors or replacing, for instance, what in theory should be a neutral civil civil service with their own people. True, plenty of parties try to do that in one way or another, but these actors do it very openly with their argument that only they represent the people, The state, of course, is there for the people. So if they occupy the state, it's as if the people themselves occupied the state. 
and maybe also worth underlining when there is pushback against these against these populist governments it becomes very important for them symbolically and if you like morally to delegitimate that protest entirely even if the protest doesn't really pose a danger to their real to their real power why I think, again, it has something to do with their initial claim that only they really represent the people. Because if you take that seriously, then it can't be true that thousands or sometimes millions of people out there are marching against their uniquely authentic representatives. So hence, we see time and time again a strategy that arguably was pioneered by Vladimir Putin in in, in Russia, where basically we're immediately told, look, what you see out there, these aren't real citizens. This, of course, has all been paid for by, and then, you know, the usual suspects tend to be trotted out, the CIA, Soros, always a, a favorite, but no limits to creativity, really, in this, in, in this, in this, in this regard. You may recall that um, years ago, when there were the Gezi Park protests against President, then still Prime Minister Erdogan, government announced that this had all been a conspiracy by the German airline Lufthansa, who, were, who was afraid of increased competition from Turkish Airlines. So there's always some story of how you basically tell people that this isn't genuine opposition. And again, if I may, this is a sort of point where one sees, if one looks more closely, a telling difference between normal democratic politics and what populists do. Because a, if you like, normal democratic government would of course also say, look, we're elected. Of course you can protest, but you're not elected, and we're going to persist with our policies, and if you don't like it, elect somebody else, and by the way, here again is our justification for why we think it's the right way to go. That's very different from somebody who immediately says or tweets that the protesters are all professional or paid activists. That doesn't even allow us to get into a discussion about policies and what might justify them. It cuts away the legitimacy of these protesters entirely, and there's basically nothing else nothing else to say. And I think that's not something that a quote-unquote normal democratic politician usually does. I mean, you mentioned Putin. How important is the, the Putin model of a sort of a postmodern authoritarian regime in the 21st century as a model for the Viktor Orbans of, of this world as an objective? So I would agree that there is a kind of model out there. I'm not sure that, you know, it's entirely due to to sort of the Russian example initially. I think everybody's sort of learning from everybody else and trying out different techniques, uh, including, for instance, how does one fool the EU for long enough while actually abolishing media pluralism? How does one tell stories about, oh, but look, the Danish constitution is the same like, you know, what we've done recently in order to gain, gain time and basically entrench yourself in power. That, I think, is, is definitely a reality. And maybe it's also worth adding that, because we talked a little bit about, about history, we always like to think that, of course, it's important to learn from history. Nobody disagrees with that. But I think sometimes the assumption is, well, only good guys learn from history. And alas, we've now also learned in our time that not-so-good guys also learn from history. And they, they figure out how they can do a lot of what is essentially authoritarian without producing images which would remind audiences too quickly of the typical pictures of 20th century dictatorship. So not nothing that looks too much like an obvious set of mass human rights violations. We might even say that if you've gone as far as Erdogan, you know, you lock up 70,000 people, that's not a good position to be in. It becomes far too obvious 
of how you actually run things becomes far too obvious that this isn't really a democracy anymore. It's much better to be like an Orban or a Kaczynski where there's still enough people on the outside who might say, well, yeah, certain things, you know, that I find problematic. But on the whole, that still seems to be an acceptable member of the member of the European Union. So their techniques have evolved. And I fear that many of the people who professionally or even unprofessionally try to sort of follow them and try to understand what's going on have, alas, often lagged behind. So finally, if I could ask you, these movements have clearly been on the rise electorally and had electoral success in many European countries. We anticipate they'll have further success in the European Parliament elections um, this weekend. Can you hold out any hope to me or to our listeners that that tide may at some point recede or what might be involved in turning it around? So I would emphasize two aspects in in particular. First of all, I would go back to the role of the centre-right in its relationship to far-right populism. I think how the centre-right orients itself plays a huge role. It also means that I think sometimes citizens who care about these developments can have a certain kind of influence which they probably wouldn't have vis-à-vis the far-right. I think many of us still might be listened to if we tell centre-right politicians, look, I see what you're doing. So, just as an example, Manfred Weber, the, as we nowadays always say in English, the Spitzenkandidat of the European People's Party, of course, for many years condoned what Orban was doing. Now, all of a sudden, he discovered that this is unacceptable and this is sort of authoritarian. But for years, he was entirely complicit in what was happening in Hungary. And I think if more citizens and civil society organizations and also the media, if I may say so, had pushed him and said, look, um, if you want to do this, then you've got to own up to it. Then you've got to own up to the fact that you, as the party of Helmut Kohl and Adenauer and de Gasperi and all these great sort of founders of European integration, you are supporting somebody who's actively undermining the EU. You know, why are you doing this? Far too little push in, in this regard. So that's something where I think people could be much more involved if they, if they like. And secondly, maybe rather obviously, if other parties manage to offer citizens a clear choice, for instance, a clear social democratic choice, which members of, broadly speaking, the working class find believable. So no going back to third way and radical center and all this kind of nonsense, if I may put it that way. I think that's also a, a good answer because people will say, look, yeah, I'm, 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 I no longer believe the story that populists always tell me, which is that all the other parties, it's one homogeneous corrupt elite, no difference between them, really. It's either them or you know, the populist. If the other parties make it plausible that our democracies really involve choices, then I think there's still a hope. So Macron is not the answer, because a lot of people seem to think he might be. He's done many good things. I think, again, it's been a typical, typical uh, story how we went from he's the savior to now saying, oh, it's already all over. I mean, we always forget that he got 20% in the first round in 2017. That's really his support. And if, you know, we sort of basically his, his support in polls now sort of declines and goes close to that number, that in a sense was to be expected because he didn't have a mandate from 70% of French citizens to do, certain, to do certain things. But the worry is indeed that he has sometimes been tempted by third-way rhetoric. The idea that there is this uniquely reasonable center, which is also, of course, why in his case he could tell people on the right and on the left come and join the reasonable center. It doesn't matter where you come from in terms of party politics. Of course, it was for many people a kind of uh, plausible seeming image because he could say, look, here's the reasonable center and there are these crazy extremists like Le Pen and Mélenchon. 
But I think you should justify your policies with the best arguments you have and not by simply saying, oh, if you disagree with my policies, you're being unreasonable. You're irrational. You've basically revealed yourself to be a citizen who doesn't understand the complexity of contemporary life. I think this is, in a sense, bound to pave the way, again, for populists. So, to put it bluntly, technocracy can weigh, can can pave the way for populists because it's much easier for them then to say, look, what do you mean? No real choice. I thought that was a democracy. Where are the people in this? And maybe less obviously, if then also populists are successful again, technocrats are going to say, oh my God, you give a choice to people, they're going to bring crazy demagogues to power. So it becomes a vicious circle where two things that look like opposed extremes start to reinforce each other and where also what looks like opposed extremes in a perverse way, actually share one characteristic. Because technocrats and populists on one level are anti-pluralists. The technocrat says only one rational solution in the way that during the euro crisis, I think many actors basically, essentially, were putting things. And the populist says there's only one authentic will of the people. And by the way, only we know it. And everything that I think we should think of as, as democracy, exchange of ideas, debates, role for parliaments, all that disappears. Because for these actors, there's only ever one choice. And that's not a good state for democracy to be in. Jan Vernemuller, thank you very much indeed for coming in. My pleasure. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to the Institute of International and European Affairs for facilitating today's conversation. And remember that we'll be covering the elections in Ireland and across the EU as the results come in over the weekend and into next week on irishtimes.com. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon, and to all of you who've been listening in recent months. We are seeing a great growth in our audience numbers, which we choose to interpret as a rousing vote of confidence. Remember that it is a great help to us in growing that audience even more if you take a few seconds to give us a positive review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or to share it on social media. And a special thanks also to those of you who've contacted me in recent weeks with your views. Those messages are always very welcome. You can send them to me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can usually at me on Twitter. But until the next time, goodbye and good luck. 